I hear that. That is one of my favorite sounds. It is the sound of my Bialetti stovetop coffee maker telling me it's time to relax, sit down, have an espresso or glass of Malbec, and enjoy another tale from the world of the octopus wars. Time to take a break from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. And today we're in for a treat because today we have the historical account, the official historical account of the world of Andrew Jackson, a tale that many of you have written letters to me about. And we have gotten letters from San Sebastian, Spain. And we also have a letter from a listener all the way in Kolkata, India. And as we will learn in the tale, Kolkata, India is a very important part of the story of the world of Andrew Jackson. So before we begin, let's listen to these letters from all around the world. Our first letter is from Inigo from San Sebastian, Basque Country, Spain. I will translate uh, the contents of the message after you hear it. Hola, Ezequiel. Tengo una pregunta sobre el profesor Rivarola. Aquí en San Sebastián, en el País Vasco, en el norte de España, um, cuando era un chaval, tenía muchos profesores de matemáticas que fueron discípulos del profesor Rivarola. Él fue uno de los que estableció una tradición muy fuerte en teoría de números, en el campo de aritmética modular en concreto. Y el tema es que muchos de mis profesores comentaban que el profesor Rivarola básicamente desapareció y dejó la universidad en algún momento de su carrera. Y nadie supo exactamente por qué ni a dónde fue. Y me gustaría saber si tú me puedes aclarar y darme un poco de información sobre el tema. Gracias. Inigo, thank you so very much for your letter. I will now attempt to translate the letter. Hello, Ezekiel. I have a question about Professor Rivarola. Here in Basque Country, in the north of Spain, in San Sebastián, when I was a kid, I had many math teachers who were disciples of Professor Rivarola. He was the one who established a strong tradition in number theory in the field of modular arithmetic. The mystery is that Professor Rivarola basically disappeared from the field and left the university. And no one knows why nor where he went. I was wondering if you could shed any light on this issue. Thank you. Inigo, thank you very much for your letter. And I think that the account that I will share with you all today, this historical account, will in fact shed light on the issue, as does this letter from Calcutta, from Purabin. Hi, I'm Purabin from Kolkata. We in Kolkata have known for decades about Mr. Jackson and Professor Riverola. It is common knowledge amongst the school children. Thank you. Thank you so much, Purabin, for your letter. And it's very interesting to us and it substantiates some aspects of the story that we will hear today, especially in the middle part of the story. So the fact that people in Kolkata, school children and others, were aware of Mr. Andrew Jackson and Professor Rivarola really adds credibility to many parts of this account. And from what I recall, the account goes something like this. tale from the world of the octopus wars. 
was customary for Professor Rivarola to leave the Café Astoria twenty minutes before the sun descended upon the Andes. With a globe of the world under one arm, three Egyptian statuettes under the other, and several books of the week nestled under both arms, the old eccentric would walk through the streets of Mendoza with that softened joy gained from a life of routine. But on this day, the third day of August 1945, things were far from normal for reasons that the Provinciano could never imagine. The method and the transcription have failed, he jotted in his journal. Time is running out. A new kind of solution must be found. He collected his things and abandoned the back table of the Astoria Café. Bet you wish you were as smart as those armpits, mumbled Pachito as Rivarola passed by. Pachito learned at an early age that no generic insult is as good as one that is custom made. Pachito was perhaps the wittiest and rudest Mendocino. Bohemians, thought the professor, dropping his articles. How could I have forgotten the insolent Puchito Bonanno? And there they were, Crazy Cole, Eledro, Puchito, and Fat Grano, all dressed in black and displaying the irreverent attitude that was their trademark. The Bohemians always sat outside and had a knack for killing hours by observing and commenting on the innocent passers-by. Well, 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 if it isn't the young Bohemians, the future of our country, the hope of a nation whose fat can sustain such buena vida, killing endless hours at the Astoria in spite of a world in misery, a world at war, said the professor, lighting a cigarette. You young men should learn that a little strife and service to the world is what builds man's character. There's more to life than watching the vines grow in the houses that your grandfathers struggled to buy. Living is about growth and challenges. Doesn't anyone dream of saving the world anymore? No, not really, said Pachito. Hey, is your strife and service to the world doodling at the back of the cafe? Fat Grano's deep laugh caused the metal table to vibrate as a cool wind whistled through the aluminum, wood, and canvas that together formed the skeleton of the Astoria, filling the maroon and black canopy from underneath and rattling the copper poles that barely held it up. The wind carried leaves, scraps of paper, and the voices of children playing at the nearby Plaza Independencia. These were pibes who were already complaining to their mothers that it was too early to go home. It was one of those gloomy South American Sundays. The professor looked to the plaza and took a deep breath. It's time you young men learn something important about this world, about this life, about Kolkata. Stop by my home tonight when you finish your sandwiches. Only if you don't have anything better to do, of course. Don't let the pucho burn your beard. You couldn't be a professor without it, shouted Puchito. Rivarola walked off and laughed to himself as if bohemians have something better to do. A few hours later, the bohemians visited the professor's humble home on General Paz. It was an extension of his body and spirit. Not one vertical or horizontal space was devoid of a book, map, or ancient figurine. Even the floor was covered by Montressor, 
the professor's lazy St. Bernard. The fat dog was so motionless that he always seemed to be between life and death, like his namesake in Poe. Nevertheless, he would follow the young guest with his tired eyes as if he were still fulfilling his duties as watchdog. Grano walked straight to the table. And what a table it was. It had a bowl of olives, dried salami, crackers, several cheeses, and four bottles of Malbec. It was illuminated by a ceiling lamp, which had one of those translucent green covers found only in billiard halls. The Bohemians felt honored, but Pachita was suspicious, as always. Have some salami and wine. Make yourselves at home. For what I will tell you tonight will take some time and patience, said the professor before gulping down two large cubes of salami. When I was completing my dissertation on the method and the transcription at Cordoba, I heard the most bizarre rumor about a man who was, mm, how can I say this, a man who was, well, in charge of this world, in charge of running the planet. Honk, honk, make way, announced Pachito. Here comes the bullcrap. Well, it was said that this man was in charge of the planet's magnetic fields. Access, rotation, revolution, ocean, life forms. Of all the things you could imagine, young men, continued the professor. I know it sounds crazy, and as a scientist, I didn't take such rumors seriously, till one day, when this very man summoned me for a very important mission, the professor then looked to the door. Right outside that door knocked a tall Indian man by the name of Murdoch, an assistant of this important man. And, without any words, he handed me a folded letter. I opened it, and it read, Mr. Andrew Jackson would like to meet with you. Please follow Murdoch. You are in very, very good hands. Because I was young and ambitious, I decided to go along with whatever this thing was, just as all young men embark upon perilous voyages. At that point, the silent Murdoch blindfolded me, and I entered the deepest sleep I had ever experienced. Truly sublime, only to awaken in a small town outside of Kolkata, India, in front of a nasty saloon called Lagash. It was a place of swindlers, beggars, and broken ceiling fans. Murdoch directed me to the back of the dark saloon where I found the man in charge of our planet, the great Mr. Andrew Jackson himself. There he was, wearing a black tuxedo with blood-red lapels. He stood out like a sore thumb and was a stunningly good-looking man. Unfortunately, his youthful facha could not conceal the tired maturity of someone who had seen it all and had worked long hours without pay, and what long hours they were. Next to him stood another one of his assistants, an African named Bacon, who remained motionless when Murdoch pulled a chair out for me. In my mind's eye, I could now almost see our small square table with eight scarlet tiles in the center and Jackson's wine glass sitting on the leftmost tile. From the side of my eye, I kept looking up at the expressionless bacon. What's with him, I thought. 
Andrew Jackson looked up at him too, and then he looked down again at his glass of red wine. I am Andrew Jackson. I am in charge of this iron planet, he said without showing the slightest bit of pride. Andrew Jackson? Like the president? I asked. Who? he asked, looking down at his glass. Listen very carefully, he said, looking at me for the first time. Imagine all that could happen, and the few things that do happen. Instant by instant, an indeterminable number of events strives to occur, but very few succeed. Time is stingy, giving one spot to only one thing, and at only one time. The war between what could be and what is, is the greatest struggle of our universe, a tension called the trata by us, the planet workers. Trata? I asked. There are other planet workers? Yes, I have a brother working Jupiter and a few others in solar systems that you do not know about, but that's irrelevant right now. What is important is that the oceans not rise and fall upon the land, that your planet not collide with Mercury, that a man remain a man and not spontaneously turn into an octopus. That a meteor not strike a city. That our planet not rotate in the opposite direction. That a crab not provoke massive earthquakes. Andrew Jackson stared at me. What do you believe prevents all these things from happening? He asked. I said, gravity, inertia, the conservation of energy. I said before he clenched my forearm and brought his face close to mine. When you can explain to me what gravity and those other things are, then my assistants and I can retire from doing this never-ending dirty work. All those things you speak about and learned in school will not make any sense to you after today. Murdoch and Bacon smiled, but Andrew Jackson remained serious and ran his fingers from his pale forehead through his uncut brown hair. Things are the way they are because of what we do and what we have been doing every day for the last five billion years. Sure, we've made some mistakes. The disappearance of those boring reptiles years ago was due to a miscalculation by one of my brothers working in what you'd call the Andromeda galaxy. Let's just say that he let an asteroid get away. But overall, I must say we do a good job. Bacon nodded in approval. We will take you to the center of the earth where we operate and where you'll learn about your mission, said Jackson, standing up from the table. The humidity was so thick that day that the mosquitoes couldn't fly. At that moment, we headed for a makeshift tube well, blasted out about one mile south of Lagash. I looked straight into it and could see nothing but pitch black and could hear only a slow murmur. Murdoch nudged me to jump in, and I did only to free fall for several hours. As we plummeted to the center of the earth, Bacon stared at me with a face so expressionless that it somehow discouraged me from screaming. Is this why Jackson hired him? I asked myself. After some time, we landed on a mound of fine beige sand in the middle of a small cavern. Murdoch led us to a small wooden door built into large brown stones. The place looked much like the coal mines of our country. Standing two meters from the door, Andrew Jackson began chanting a secret code, which went something like this. 
Assuming the voice of Andrew Jackson, the professor read from an old handkerchief. She turns her left shoulder into the new day, planet Earth, with all brethren in orbit. And though the astronomer has stolen her for his grand play, I know her too, in my own way. Like the babe in the womb who knows her well, for he is of, not from, this world. Trata, all that desires cannot be. Trata, a planet runner has come to oversee. One second after uttering the last word, continued the professor, the wooden door opened and I was led into a cavern so large that its walls could not be seen. The space was full of old wooden cranks, levers, pulleys, wheels, and cauldrons. It was a real mess, and the amount of noise produced by the machines was intolerable. Local Bengalis, about 50 of them, were pulling on levers, pushing cranks, filling and emptying 30-foot-high cauldrons of water, turning cogs, and worst of all, incessantly yelling at each other. I heard a short, stocky one yell at another one, Stop spinning the spin! You're spinning too fast! Slow it down! Pay attention! At that point, Jackson felt obliged to explain a few things to me. You see those two men turning those giant cogs? If they don't wind that gear on a daily basis, the world won't turn. It'll just sit still. And those levers over there keep the tectonic plates in place. And those pulleys cut the winds. I had to interject. How could that wooden gear turn the earth if it's not attached to anything at all? The wooden gear is not attached to anything. I couldn't help but interrupt Mr. Jackson. He said to me, it's not what it does, but what we do. What matters is that we devote the necessary time and attention to these things, that someone cares enough to do them. It's in the doing, not the making. But these things are difficult to explain to an outsider. Granana, he snapped to a worker standing near a small bucket. Make sure that that sea's tides rises. Put some more water into that bucket to make the tide rise for that sea. Andrew Jackson told me that the large cauldrons regulated the depth of the oceans and that the small bucket was for the Mediterranean Sea. As we walked away, I looked back and saw Granana pissing in the bucket of our mm -hmm. beloved Mediterranean. I learned at that moment that our world was not run like a Swiss watch factory. It was very late, but the young Bohemians were all so thrilled to finally learn about how the world works that time no longer mattered to them. Fat Grana was the only one who seemed a little bit bored, twirling a toothpick in his glass of juice. We must continue. It is our duty to the world, declared the professor before pouring himself another glass of Malbec. Now we know where he gets his stories, whispered Allegro to Cole. The professor continued. Mr. Jackson took me to an alcove in the quietest section of the large cavern, where a fiery light illuminated his pale face. That's where he told me about the mission. 
Bacon informed me that you are from the Southern Cone and that you are working on some project, the method and the transcription. Is that right? Jackson asked me. Yes, I said. Then, looking to Bacon, Jackson mentioned to me that he knew our continent very well and that a small mistake was made there recently, one involving a man metamorphosing into an octopus. But that's not what he wanted to see me about. Do you know what causes earthquakes? Jackson asked me, looking away as if my knowing the answer were an impossibility. By then, I had had enough experience not to answer his rhetorical questions. They're not caused by all the things that you scientists believe, he said. They're really caused by a despicable pest called Mingu, a terrible, angry, loathsome creature. Mingu? I asked. After all, what was I to believe? Bacon and Murdoch brought over a large glass jar which held what looked like a regular crab but with a large human head. I couldn't believe my eyes. It had long circular mustaches like those of a gajego. It kept staring at me with the rudest expression I had ever witnessed. Bacon opened the jar and faster than lightning, Mingu called me a fat fool. His angry voice reverberated within the jar until Andrew Jackson closed the lid. This is what causes earthquakes, he said to me while pointing at the jar. If Mingu is not insulted back on a daily basis, earthquakes can occur anywhere on the globe. But if he is insulted, he goes into a sleep that is only as deep as his insult was degrading. Being that we don't have your social way of life, we've been only able to get him into a light sleep that lasts about a day. Theoretically, however, little Mingu could be degraded to the point of flipping on its back and sleeping for millennia. Don't ask me why, it's just the way things are. Murdoch demonstrated this bizarre relationship between insults and sleep by opening the lid and calling Mingu feo, which means ugly. That was the only word I ever heard him utter. Boy, you're really creative, responded Mingu before dozing off into a light sleep. Again, said Jackson, it's all in the intention, not the making. What does this have to do with me? I am just a scientist. I asked with my hands up in the air. Well, said Andrew Jackson, in several years there will be a big volcanic eruption in the Pacific that will affect all the continents of the world. The Andean Fault will be the most vulnerable. If Mingu causes earthquakes at the time of this eruption, it will have effects that we are not prepared to deal with. Because of a resonance? I asked, trying to find at least one thing that could obey the laws of physics. No, but for reasons that you couldn't believe, please abandon your method and the transcription nonsense and learn how to insult a crab if you want to do real science. You can imagine how difficult the time of these future events will be for my small crew. The trata will be tricky to oversee, and I'm not as on top of things as I used to be. You see, I've grown tired of being a planet runner, dealing with one problem after another. Sometimes I wish I had been assigned to Pluto. Murdoch and Bacon handed me the jar, and Andrew Jackson said to me, 
Do us and your people a favor. By any means necessary, make sure that angry Mingu is asleep when that great explosion goes off. Good luck and farewell, my friend. With his red lapels and black tuxedo, the man in charge of our planet picked up a violin and started playing Bach in the middle of the huge cavern while all his assistants continued their painful toil. A fiery glow illuminated the gears that were turning and the pulleys that were lifting. But till this day I can't understand what I saw. I sat there for three partitas till Murdoch blindfolded me and brought me back to quiet Cordoba. Since then I have seen the world through different eyes as you can imagine. The Bohemians were in shock, except for Puchito. Oh, now I see why I'm here, he said. And I thought the wine and cheese were for free. Crazy Cole immediately looked at one of the shelves on the bookcase where there was a large cylinder covered by a scarlet tablecloth. Yes, that's right, Puchito, said Professor Riverola. I'm embarrassed to admit that Though I have studied science all of my life, I do not have the skills necessary to prevent earthquakes. But you do. Saying this, the professor carefully brought down the large cylinder and unveiled it. There was Mingu himself, with mustaches and all, giving everyone a dirty look. Grano jumped off his chair. You see, young bohemians, I've been calling him Feo, Every morning for several decades, continued the professor, but I'm afraid that my insults don't work very well. They lack a certain panache. Sometimes Mingu laughs at me and calls me pathetic, and I found that simple insults don't work anymore. Like a war general, Pochito Bonanno stood up and declared, Professor, don't worry about a thing. I and my fellow Bohemians will take it from here. We will insult this thing every day. I will make sure that the insults are good and that the bug never hears the same insult twice. And so it was that Pachito took Mingu with him and on every day gave the crab a dose of our province's finest custom-made insults, including, because of your mustache, no one would ever eat you because nobody wants hair in their food. And, crabs are so dumb, they can walk only sideways. Another insult was, scientifically, crabs are considered a kind of bug. Professor Riverola said, You should be proud to do this noble act of altruism for Mr. Andrew Jackson and for the world. The professor clapped his hands together and spoke with much gravitas. Pride? Altruism? said Pachito. Next time you happen to be in Kolkata, you tell that loafer, Andrew Jackson, and his incompetent gang of assistants that Pachito Bonanno is a professional who always gets the job done. And please don't confuse this with altruism. I'm trying to save my own rear end. If I relied on those people from Lagash, I'd end up like the dead lizards at the museum. Years later, although Puchito's character had not changed for the better after his 
invaluable service to Mendoza and the world, Professor Rivarola always thanked him and loved him all the more for his God-given talent. Many respected that, on top of his duty of saving the world, Pachito always found the time to still insult the passersby at the Astoria. After each insult, passersby would often reply with a smile, saying, Thank you, campeón. I don't know what the big fuss is all about, Pachito once said to Don Pellegrino. It's not like we won the World Cup. On our next episode of The Octopus Wars, you will hear more of the insults that young Pachito crafted in order to insult Mingu and save the world.